for Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, researchers at Johns Hopkins University say months into the pandemic, Georgia and many other states are still not conducting enough tests for the coronavirus. It really underscores how unprepared we were for a pandemic where we were going to have a large number of cases and the need to be able to distinguish the infected from the uninfected. Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious diseases researcher at Johns Hopkins, joins me to discuss COVID-19 testing failures in Georgia and across the country, what he calls the original sin of the pandemic. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. More than half the states in the country are not testing enough for the coronavirus. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University say Georgia and 31 other states are not meeting recommended levels of test positivity. That is, how many tests return positive results. Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious diseases researcher at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, says a number of problems have plagued the U.S.'s ability to tell who's actually sick with COVID-19. He's with me now to discuss just what's gone wrong. Dr. Adalja, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking today about testing, and I want to start by talking about how much testing is happening across the country. According to an analysis from Johns Hopkins, y'all's Coronavirus Resource Center, fewer than half the states in the country are doing enough testing for coronavirus infections. We are many, many months into the pandemic. Why is that still the case, that states are not testing enough? States are not testing enough because we don't have the capacity to test. We've gotten much better at testing now in August of 2020 than we were in March of 2020. And inpatient testing of patients who are hospitalized has become pretty seamless and pretty easy. But we still have a major problem with outpatient testing because we're heavily relying on PCR tests. And PCR tests require reagents to be able to run the tests for most of them. And reagents have been in short supply from the very beginning and have been prioritized and rationed towards hospitals and away from outpatient testing. So until we've solved that reagent problem, we're always going to have constraints in testing. And when you have these constraints with long turnaround times of seven or eight days, that disincentivizes people to go and get tested because if they're going to get a test back in seven to eight days, it's worthless for them. It's worthless for contact tracers. And they might have to stand in line for a long period of time to get this worthless test. So then people don't get tested. The other issue is that 
we don't really prioritize outpatient testing in terms of who should get tested first. So there's often politicians saying things like, anybody that wants a test can get a test. And that sometimes gets people to go get tests that don't really need to get a test when there's somebody who's symptomatic, who truly needs a test, whose test result is kind of batched in with everybody else's. And that also is, is something that's been a major problem since the beginning. But in general, it's, there's been a lot of supply and logistical constraints as well as policy constraints. And then you have individuals who think that the more you test, the more cases you find. And, and that also sends a chilling effect through the whole community. Supply chain issues, the ability of labs to get their hands on reagents, should that be surprising to us? I mean, it just seems like, oh, well, this is a, a manufacturing issue. Why can't we just make more reagents and, and solve that part of the supply chain problem? It is surprising that in a country where we can make things very, very quickly, where we can ramp up production, where we have great technology, that we're stymied by something as simple as the chemicals used to do a test. But that's the fact of the matter. And I do think that there had been massive evasion on the need for how much testing would be necessary in January, February, March, and we've still never been able to catch up or to understand what the role of testing should be. And if that's going to always be the case, reagent supplies are not going to be prioritized. Now there are new tests that are coming out that don't necessarily rely on reagents. And those types of tests are going to be much more important as we move forward because reagent supplies not only are used for the coronavirus test, they're also used for influenza testing. They're even used for MRSA testing. And this has to be something we fix. So if we can do anything to take the pressure off the reagent supply by moving to non-reagent requiring COVID tests, like the saliva test we heard about get approved by Yale, that will have a measurable impact. But in general, this is something that we need to figure out because it can't be that the chemicals to run the test are what are constraining our outbreak response. To talk about kind of how organizations determine whether or not enough testing is done, the kind of benchmark seems to be test positivity. If you do X number of tests, how many of those tests come back positive? Now, the World Health Organization says they want to see that positivity number at under 5% before they would recommend that a society open back up. But we see more than half the states with positivity rates of above 5%. So is the answer here we simply need to be testing more people? Or is part of this, we just need to think about reducing disease, which would also lower the positivity rate? They go hand in hand. We want to make sure that we're testing enough that we're not allowing mild cases to go by, because we know that mild cases and maybe even asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic cases can have an impact on spread. So if you're only testing so much that your percent positivity is 50% or 20% or whatever it might be, that means you're really focusing on the sick patients which we definitely know need to be tested, but that means you're mostly missing all those mild cases that are not coming to attention. And those mild cases can spread the infection. So that's where this 5% number comes from. When we see countries that have achieved control of the virus, their percent positivity is such that it's less than 5%, which means you have to do a lot more testing or you have to make the disease very rare in your population. It's gonna be hard to completely make this disease rare because it has established itself in the human population and it spreads very efficiently. So I do think that the way out of this is having testing as a green light, red light signal, knowing what your status is and making the appropriate adjustments to your life if you're positive or if you're negative. And the only way we're going to do that is to have testing at a very high level. And you can see when states that had control lost control, their percent positivity went up. And then you saw these incursions into the hospital and hospital capacity becoming tighter. 
So it is a real phenomenon that when the percent positivity goes up and goes down, that really does reflect disease activity, so long as your testing is either stable or, or going up. So I do think this is a good way to tell whether or not you're achieving control. I, I think of it as a way of, you know, how hard do you have to look to find a case? If you don't have to look very hard to find a case, you probably have too much community spread. If it's really hard for you to find a case, that means you likely have control of this virus in your community. Making this local, thinking about Georgia, Georgia's percent positive rate right now is, is right about 10%. What do you make of that? And are there concrete ways that states that are above this 5% threshold can really work to drive it down? The best way to drive it down is to continue to do the basics, the testing, the tracing, and the isolating of cases. And part of that is going to be allowing testing to be much more freely available, meaning that people who have mild symptoms or hints of a symptom, they need to be able to get tested so that they can know their status and then have their contacts traced and then be isolated. And I do think when you look at a state number, that's somewhat misleading because there probably are counties in Georgia where it is lower and where it is higher than 10%. So there may be specific locations that you have to use different types of tactics based on what the local dynamics of the outbreak are. So for example, in an urban area like Atlanta, you might have different transmission dynamics in a more rural area of Georgia. So it is going to be something that's not going to be one size fits all, but in general, it's the basic principles, the principles that countries like Taiwan did from the beginning that are how you get this under control. It's not anything that's out of the ordinary or something that's not in public health textbooks and has been in public health textbooks for probably hundreds of years. It's very simple. We know how to control this. It's actually having the political will to execute it. Georgia, like all the other states, recently submitted a a plan to federal officials for how they plan to test for the next six months. They sent this into the Department of Health and Human Services. And state officials here, their goal by the time we get to December is to be able to test 4% of our state's population. That's about 10.6 million people. Testing 4% of the population, is that going to be sufficient for us here in Georgia It's hard to take those types of numbers and translate it to what needs to be done. On the face of it, 4% seems lower than you would expect to need to get control of a state like Georgia, where the percent positivity is 10% right now, knowing that you're likely missing a good proportion of cases, maybe up to tenfold, just because still we know that people are not getting tested. So I don't like to peg it to a specific number because I don't think that there's a lot of ways to kind of adjudicate that. I think the question has to be, you know, does everybody that needs to be tested because they're symptomatic, because they're involved in a case contact investigation? Are they getting tested? And I don't know what that translates into because it's going to depend upon the local dynamics. If you can get the outbreak controlled, like a state, for example, like Vermont, then you may not need to test the entire population at that high of a level. So I I don't think you can come up with a one size fits all. It really has to be driven by the dynamics of what's going on, who's driving infection. And I don't like pegging it to a specific number because that number can change depending upon what the dynamics might do in a given state. Something else that we've seen here in Georgia is a lack of demand for testing. We've had state officials now on multiple occasions say, we need people to get tested more. We have tests. People aren't using them. Those state officials then say it's not the government's fault if people don't want to get tested. Is that something that we're seeing in other states, testing capacity that's going unused? I definitely think that's the case. People are discouraged about testing because though there is testing capacity, the turnaround time might be such that it's not a very actionable test result. So somebody may not want to wait seven or eight days to know what their status are. So they decide not to get tested. There's also the issue that people might not want to be tested because they don't want to know their status because they know that that's going to 
trigger a period of, of self-isolation, plus a contact trace and, and some of their contacts being self-quarantined for 14 days. So there may be some negative disincentives about that, especially when they're hearing from politicians, from the, the head of our government, that the more you test, the more cases you find, and maybe we shouldn't be testing that much. That type of rhetoric does trickle down to the average person, and I do think it impacts how they view testing. So there are many reasons why people don't get tested. And I think we have to kind of break out of that because the only way we get control of this is by doing the testing, tracing, and isolating, by being able to know your status, to having the ability to know who is infected and who isn't infected. Much of the issues with masks is because we don't know who is infected. So a lot of these problems that we have become much harder when you don't have testing optimally designed. When you get testing in a better place, a lot more things can become possible. I wonder here if the issue in Georgia and maybe in in other states isn't so much that we lack the capacity, but maybe we lack the ability to target this capacity where it's, it's really needed. You know, I'm calling you from home. I have the flexibility of a job where I can work remotely. So I'm not someone who's necessarily going to go get a test because I'm not out in the world that often, as opposed to maybe an essential worker, a teacher who is trying to go back into the classroom who could very much use that test. So is is part of the issue here just kind of a misallocation of the resources we do have? I do think that people are getting tested that don't really truly, from a medical standpoint, need to be tested. And there are people who are sick who don't have the time to get tested or, or can't get tested or don't want to get tested. And those are the people we need to test. You have to remember that not everybody is equally contagious because they have idiosyncrasies in how they handle the virus as well as their own activities. So you want to optimize your interventions by testing those people that are most likely to lead to spread so that we can get control of this. And I do think we have to come up with a national testing strategy to optimize a limited resource. What we're trying to optimize is the public health impact of those tests. Do they lead to a case investigation and contact trace that stops a chain of transmission early? That's what we're trying to do. So in order to do that, you do have to target your testing to those parts of your community that are responsible for the majority of spread, where the risk is the highest, because that will have an outsized impact than if you're testing people who probably are very, very low risk, who don't have symptoms, that's not going to lead to as much actionable information than testing places where you know there is a hot spot or there is a high risk of spread or high risk of disease. Earlier in the summer, we were seeing wait times, turnaround times on these tests of upwards of of two weeks in some cases here in Georgia and I think elsewhere across the country. Doing a quick check on the websites of of LabCorp and Quest, these are two of the biggest private labs in the country processing coronavirus tests. They now say they have a turnaround time of one to two days, where earlier in the summer it was much longer than that. What needs to be done to kind of overcome this really bad summer that testing had from a PR perspective? I mean, I think people are not going to get tested because they've heard horror stories of how how long it can take and essentially how ineffective it is. How do public officials, public health officials start to change people's minds that, that things are in a better place than they were earlier this summer? The only way that we're going to be able to do that is if public health authorities talk to the general public on a regular basis, telling them this is what test turnaround time is. So no, it's not going to be seven or eight days. And talking frankly about what the problems have been. The more the public understands the response and the mechanics of that response, the more likely they are to be able to accept it and to take the proper action. So I do think the public health authorities need to continue to hammer in that importance of testing 
and talk about the logistics of it, saying you can expect a test result in two to three days. This is why it takes two to three days. That's the only thing that we can do, and we need to get it down quicker and quicker. And there are places where it is getting quicker because we're starting to use antigen tests now, which do give you a result pretty quickly. They're not ironclad, but they are important pieces of information, and it takes pressure off of the PCR testing, which does have a longer turnaround time. So as our testing technology gets better, and it's only going to get better as more and more different modalities come online, we will get that testing to a, a, an acceptable range. And I do think eventually we probably will have home tests that people can use at, in their home that tell them not with the same sensitivity as PCR, but you don't need that kind of sensitivity uh, for this type of a purpose to know, are you contagious or are you not contagious? And we've been hearing a lot of interest in this. And I do think this is gonna be one of the ways that we learn to live with this virus because this isn't going anywhere. And we do need to find a way for people to be able to know their status and take actions. And I think a home test that tells you whether you're contagious or not uh, is the way forward. Really briefly, because you mentioned antigen tests, you mentioned PCR tests, just so our listeners are really clear, what are the differences between the two? So the PCR test, that stands for polymerase chain reaction. That's a test that is labor intensive, is costly. It's usually done from a nasal swab or a saliva swab, where they're looking for the genetic material of the virus. They're amplifying it and they're really sensitive, meaning a small amount of genetic material will turn the test positive. But what the PCR test doesn't tell you is whether or not you're contagious. Because we know that there are many people who maybe were sick two weeks ago or three weeks ago and they're still shedding the virus and they're no longer contagious, but they maybe didn't get tested back then. That test result will just say they're positive. So we don't know whether that means they're contagious. The antigen test, on the other hand, is something that's rapid. It can be done in the doctor's office. You probably all had an antigen test done when you got your throat swab for strep throat at some period of time. And what an antigen test does is takes a nasal sample it looks for the material of the virus, not the genetic material, but a, a structural part of the virus. And if that's positive, that tells you, you know, the virus is there. And these things are not as sensitive as the PCR test, but they're probably more sensitive for if you're contagious or not, because it's a different threshold to be antigen positive than it would be to be PCR positive. And if they're positive, you've got your answer. If they're negative, you may need to do a backup PCR test if you want to definitively know, for example, if you're being admitted to the hospital. But it might be the case that if you're antigen negative, even if you would be PCR positive, you might not be contagious. So this is something we're actively trying to figure out how to operationalize now. And I do think it is an important path forward. What kind of testing regime would someone like yourself like to see to really help us move forward as best we can from where we are now? What would that regime look like? Who would get tested? How many tests would, would there be? What kind of frequency? Just kind of lay that out for me. To me, the ideal type of testing would be home-based testing where people can test themselves at will whenever they want with cheap tests that tell them not if they're PCR positive or negative, but if they're contagious or not, if they are a risk to other people. That's the type of testing I think will get us out of this. When it comes to people who are sick with symptoms, those people are likely going to need PCR testing. And that's truly the case when they're hospitalized. And that testing for coronavirus in the hospital setting needs to also be able to test for other viruses. We have these respiratory viral panels that can test for maybe 10 or 14 different types of viruses. We need the new coronavirus to be added to those panels so that we can test immediately and know right away whether they have influenza, whether they have coronavirus, whether they have both. That's how I think we, we need to test. We need to get to a place where it's like HIV testing, where you can be tested at home if you want. That's the way we want to be able to test for coronavirus. If there's no constraints, that we don't worry about reagent supplies, that we don't have a lot of bureaucracy to get a test, and that people can use the test for actionable types of advice. Do I go out today? Do I go to work today? Do I go to school today? 
all of that is going to be driven by a test result. So I do think getting the technology and getting the testing algorithms in place so that we can find a path forward like that is one way that we move forward in the midst of this pandemic, because this virus is going to establish itself in the human population. Even after a vaccine, we're still gonna be dealing with COVID-19. So it's important that we find measures that allow us to be able to pursue our values and our lives and not be constantly in fear of this virus looming over us. And I do think that, that testing at the point of care at home is probably the only path forward. It seems like testing, if, if we think about our pandemic response, being able to detect infections really does seem like the most basic capacity that we would need to fight a pandemic. We're here months after we first learned about the coronavirus. We're still seeing so many challenges with testing. What do you make of the fact that we are still here, that testing is still working so poorly in this country, that our, our testing regime is still where it is even after we've been fighting the coronavirus for, for months. Most of us in this field, in pandemic preparedness and emerging infectious disease, never thought it would be a diagnostic test issue that would completely disrupt, hamper, and destroy the United States response. So to me, it is shocking that we still have not been able to fix this testing problem. Uh, and it's inexcusable because we were talking about the need for testing and being able to do this as early as January. And now we're in August and we're still fighting that same battle. And I often tell people that the original sin of this pandemic has been the testing problem. It really underscores how unprepared we were for a pandemic where we were going to have a large number of cases and the need to be able to distinguish the infected from the uninfected. And we simply have failed at doing that over and over again. And we continue to make the same mistakes. Dr. Amish Shadalja is an infectious diseases researcher at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.